Thank you for checking out the Detroit Church Podcast. We are a growing community in the heart of the city, and we exist to awaken Detroit to the greatest adventure of all time. We look forward to sharing this journey as God is making all things new. In a very interesting place as a, as a, as a city, as a country, as a people, even us as Detroiters and those who are committed to the vision and stakeholders in the vision of Detroit Church. There are some things that we know that God has instructed us to do. He called us here to be a part of this local family, not just to have a good time, not just to party and shout some things, clap our hands and hear a nice message and go. I don't know about you, but I feel this burden that God has called us to impact real change in this city, yo. Like systematic change. What I'm saying is there's there's so much potency here in this room right now. There's so much ability to impact the powers that be, the systems that be. And that's why God, I believe, has drawn so many of us here. I know we come in limping. We come in with our baggage. We come in like rustling with stuff because we're still on this journey. And God accepts us with the baggage. He accepts us with it. And he uses it as fuel for the fire. This is what we see in the life of David. And this is what we've seen in Habakkuk. God is not afraid of Habakkuk's questions. He brings them to God. He wrestles with God. And God begins to reveal himself in a crazy, off-the-meter way. But not before helping Habakkuk feel the burden of the current reality. And we want to like just pause right here for a minute and kind of bring all of us up to speed so that we can feel the burden of the current reality. We don't have the luxury of being here on the outskirts, the near outskirts of downtown Detroit, midtown Detroit. Lots of exciting things happening. Lots of people coming in. Lots of new faces. Lots of development. However, we don't have the luxury of being in this city and not being directly impacted by the deep and systemic injustices and oppressions of the city. Can I get an amen? We have a savior who came and lived among us. So there's this this missiology, this this, this theology to our missionary work. And you may say, well, I'm not a missionary. Hey, sure you are. Sure you are. You're not from here originally. You've been sent here by your creator. You're an ambassador, a representative of heaven, and God has equipped you with aid from above. So we're all indigenous missionaries to a a certain extent, and we've got to understand what does it mean to carry a burden? Carry the burden of heaven so that we can really see the issues for where they are. Not live behind a smoke glass not live without allowing ourselves to be deeply impacted by that reality. So, I am joined up here by some friends of mine who I I have so much respect for. They are those who God has used in the marketplace, used in the culture. I will call them experts in a bunch of different areas. And we're going to talk about some of those areas momentarily. And just like God allowed Habakkuk to see and to feel deeply some of the issues that were plaguing God's people, the children of Israel, but also the broader uh, context of the Babylonian system. God allowed Habakkuk to experience those, and he gave the, He gave Habakkuk five woes. Five woes, the scripture tells us. And these woes were, were judgments. And these were serious cultural issues that were happening. So we're going to talk about some 
of those in our context. Things like housing discrimination. Things like police brutality. Things like racism. Things like how do we care for and walk alongside and notice and see and love the LGBTQ plus community. How do we do that as a church? All of these things that it's so easy, y'all, to kind of look over and walk right past. God has called us to walk alongside the culture. We're in the world. We're not of the world, but we're still in it. So let's not get either confused. We're in it. You are in this world. You're not of this world. You're of a greater world, a greater system, a greater kingdom, right? But we're still in it. So we're going to dive into these questions. And I want to um, acknowledge uh, my friends up here and thank you guys for being willing to join this conversation with us. Can we give them a hand? Don't they look nice? <laughs> yes, yes. All right. So we are going to do a quick 90 second introduction. Let's try to keep it 90 seconds, y'all. And, uh, and we'll focus on, on this side first. And uh, again, our theme is going to be help us understand the current reality. Help us understand the current context of, of, of what we are dealing with as a people and as a city. But before we get into that, just uh, kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, why you care, and why we should care. So we're going to start with my girl, Latrice here. Yes, ma'am. And we will go down that way and come back around. All right, hello everybody. I am Latrice McClendon. Uh, I believe I'm up here because I most recently worked with uh, Mayor Duggan's office. I was an appointee as a district manager uh, in District 1. Uh, we served about 100,000 residents. Uh, dealt with blight issues, dealt with uh, just, hey, can we get the lights turned on on our street issues, right? Which is a big deal because you go downtown and I don't think there's one light missing, but that's a, we'll stick a pin in that. But, um, and so I had a chance to be the liaison between the government and the actual people. And you'll find often the reason you should care is because the people sometimes look different than our government. Right? What's going on in our neighborhoods, the houses they live in without water or without power or without the money to pay their bills? Like, we should care because the poor people are not going anywhere, right? There are people who need help. And so um, I've been passionate about just, I guess, being an advocate for people. Like, I mean, government is great. It's been a fun ride to work with the city, but it's even been more fulfilling to work with the residents uh, here in the city of Detroit, helping them to. Um, you know, helping to get the word to the mayor and the powers that be. So that's what I've been doing the last few years. Let's give her a hand, y'all. Yeah. Latrice McClendon. All right. Hello, I'm Sam Pagita Jones, and um, I am a mother, a wife, a child of God. And uh, God brought my husband and I, my husband's from Detroit, he brought us here um, a little over a year ago. Uh, and I had no idea why. And it was to actually serve our youth in uh, foster care. So I'm with the new foster care. We're a faith-based 501c3. Uh, and we service um, at-risk families. Um, we help with prevention. We help with um, youth that are aging out. So my specific uh, role is to help youth that are transitioning out of foster care um, with workforce development and housing. I help with um, personal development plans, like budgeting. You can get them a job, but if they don't know how to budget their money, don't know how to spend their money, don't know how to save it, um, 
what good does the job do? Um, so help with that. But ultimately, what it is is I am a disciple, and I create, I make disciples. That's what we're all here to do. Um, so that is the number one role um, here in Detroit for myself and my family. Wow. And, and Give us some love. I was going to say, why should you care? Because you're here today, and that's what Jesus has called us all to do: is be disciples. That's why you should care. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Megan Strickland, and um, so my my work is around housing. Um, specifically, I work for a nonprofit here in the city, um, along with Tanya Phillips and others. Um, it's called the United Community Housing Coalition. They've been around since the 70s, doing work around housing justice. And um, my main issue of focus is the tax foreclosure uh, crisis and really trying to work with homeowners and tenants uh, to keep them in their homes. I sort of had a rude awakening personally to this um, several years ago when I bought, I purchased a home as, as an investment property and I found that the woman living there um, had, this had, home had been in her family for a long time. When her husband got sick, um, she, she fell behind on her property taxes. And through state law um, that passed in 1999, if you're three years behind in taxes, uh, property taxes as a Detroit or Wayne County homeowner, uh, the government will foreclose on your property, seize your property, and sell it on the internet to anyone, the highest bidder in auction. And um, this, among other reasons, is why we've seen so much displacement um, and things like that. So I, I, I began to know this woman, and she shared her story with me, and finding out that her story was not an anomaly in our city, uh, but that one in four homes have been tax foreclosed since 2010. Uh, this really woke me up, and um, that's why I care. That's why I do the work I do. Um, I encourage us all to seek this out because it affects us. And if you know, if you live in Detroit, I mean, I have eight vacant homes on my block, and um, we see this every day. So this is part of part of what's gone on with uh, with housing in our city. Wow. wow. Thank you, Megan. Hey, everyone. My name's Sean Novak. I believe I'm on this panel because I've been working in higher ed for 15 years. Um, and uh, I, I'm an associate registrar at the University of Detroit Mercy. And uh, also, uh, I had the opportunity to, uh, as an adjunct faculty, I teach sociology and cultural anthropology as well. A little, little side hustle to put a little, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice yeah. side hustle, isn't it? Life has changed a lot. Humble brag. <laughs> um, why do I care? You know, honestly, it, it comes back from, I'm, I'm originally from Detroit. I had my K through five education in DPS, and then I moved out to the suburbs and the sticks, and I went on this whole little journey between fifth grade and graduating high school, and I saw a lot of disparity. So when I was growing up, when I was coming up, one of the things that really um, hurt my heart, right, was to see the discrepancy between what my brothers and sisters in Detroit were experiencing and what they had compared to what I saw in Farmington Hills, Linden, South Line, Fenton, all the, you know. Um, so I wanted to be a part of bridging that gap, and it just so happened that I came to understand that while I was blessed to go to college because I finally found myself in an environment where that's just what people were doing. And I, oh, okay, that's what we do now, right? Because I didn't come from that background where that's what we did now, right? Um, and so I think an experience that I have on a daily basis that really reminds me of this is, you know, I, I stay over in Grandmont, Southfield and Schoolcraft, and I take Schoolcraft all the way into Livernois. 
and I experience something on a daily basis that reminds me of that discrepancy. You know what I mean? I go by, I see abandoned houses, I see pot shops, I see liquor stores, I see, I see folks selling their bodies on the streets, I see people strung out. But you know what I also see is I see little kids at the bus stop waiting to go to school. And that's something that I didn't see in other communities. And that reminded me that what we are dealing with in education is bigger. It can't be just isolated to education. There's a bigger interconnected thing that's going on. I didn't experience that in those other communities. My textbooks got 10 years cheaper when I went to the suburbs. I'm sorry, 10 years younger when I went to the suburbs. And I always remember that. So that's, that's, that's why I'm here. And, and I think as I've grown in my walk with Christ, I realized uh, how that connected to my faith that, you know, I need to learn how to share that burden with my brothers and sisters and use all that wisdom and knowledge that I've been able to accumulate over the years for a godly purpose. And uh, that led me to this church and this panel discussion. Thank you. Crazy. Wow. Thank you. Good. Oh, wait. <laughs> My name is Mike Walters. I'm the, I'm the police. <laughs> Popo. I'm the one everybody loves. Five, five. Um, spent a couple years in Detroit. I just moved to Dearborn Heights. Been out there for the past year. But for me, I say I care because for real, for me, I've became awakened to just this whole issue, I'd say back in 14 when the whole Ferguson issue really just took off. Um, I really started to see the brokenness and just the disdain. I mean, we grew up, you know, for some of us, you know, we were told how to act when interacting with the police. We were told how to act when in public. Keep your hands on the wheel, do this and that. But it's like you can still do everything right and things still go wrong. So, I mean, throughout the midst of all the brokenness and hurt, I already had an interest for law enforcement, but my interest and desire grew throughout the midst of all this tragedy. And for me, God put on my heart. He wanted me to go towards it because throughout the midst of all this pain, all this frustration, people still need the gospel at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Us as Christians, we're not called to be comfortable. That's right. And you should care because at the end of the day, it affects all of us whether you like it or not. Right. The world's integrating, interracial dating's becoming a thing, the world's becoming more diverse, so you're gonna be affected one way or another. And at the end of the day, we have the hope that the world needs. Mm-hmm. Romans 15 and four says, for what was written in the past was written to encourage us that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. So at the end of the day, we have the hope that the world needs. Yeah. I look at it like this. I mean, let's say you had a family member who was dying on a deathbed and you had the antidote to heal them. I'd be certain that you guys would be willing to give them that antidote. So in the same way, it's like we have a world that's spiritually dying, yeah. people walking dead literally. So it's like, why are we not giving them the hope that they need? Man, what I am most intrigued at is how you guys lead how you lead, not just because of a conviction, because you live here, you love the city, but it is a conviction that has arisen out of your faith. I think that's really, really significant. So you all have stated the challenges, each of you in your own way, to some extent or another. Can you help us understand, and I'll throw this out to any of you, help us understand where have these challenges come from and why are they allowed, why have they been, been allowed to persist for so long? Any of you want to tackle that? <laughs> from a housing situation to education to economics, city planning, Um, 
Well, I would say first, a plug. I would listen to Sharita's sermon from several weeks ago if you weren't here, because she kind of goes through. Yeah, give it up for that, that sermon on Micah 6. Sharita kind of busted the whole thing wide open, and she did speak on housing, so I encourage you to listen to the podcast. She, she goes through the history of housing discrimination and the forms it has taken in our country, which from racial covenants to urban renewal, land contract, predatory lending, all this kind of stuff. Um, and the most recent thing that's just so incredibly prolific in Detroit is tax foreclosure. And, and sometimes when I talk to people about this who are kind of disconnected from it, they say, well, why don't people just pay their taxes? Like, did Detroit homeowners not pay bills they don't pay property taxes and I take a lot of issue with that because um, several reasons when you ask what's the cause um, government and law you know I mentioned the law we have a law where if you're three years behind um, the, the government can seize your home and sell it in public auction on the internet and and there's no protection for that person um, in fact the, the owner of a home that is taken cannot bid on their own home to try to redeem it the other thing is when you're delinquent if you get behind one year um, interest and fees start to accrue on that at 18% interest a year so it's easy to get into a hole the other thing is um, studies have found that between 2009 and 2015, over 50% of homes in Detroit were illegally assessed. They were over-assessed. That means homes were um, assessed at over ha um, half of market rate, which is against the Michigan Constitution. So um, additionally, a lot of homeowners in our city um, are low income. You know, all these conversations we're having up here, they're not disconnected. You know, racism, poverty, housing, it's not disconnected. They're not compartmentalized issues. Um, but but homeowners who are low income are eligible for an exemption on their taxes. Um, but a lot of people don't know about it. it the data shows about 40,000 homeowners um, should be getting this exemption, should be getting a reduction in their taxes. Only 5,000 are applying for it every year. Um, and that's partly because of people don't know about it. It also requires a notary and all these kinds of things people don't necessarily have access to. So I think I push back on that notion that people just aren't paying their taxes. I think there's a systemic issue going on uh, that we have to look deeper into. Thank you, Megan. It's good. Sean, can you help us understand and that same question in the realm of education? And then you too, Sam, jump in um, with what you do. Like, why has this been allowed to stay around and persist for so long, generation after generation? We see the issue, and it's not appearing to get better. I think... You know, part of it, I think, is, is really a, a breakdown in community. I think a lot of times when we talk about the breakdown in community, people, let's use Detroit as an example, right, from the outside in, can look at Detroit, right, look at black communities and say the breakdown of the black community and put the, the responsibility there, right? But there's a bigger piece, right, where there was a breakdown in community where folks left community, right? Folks are, um, uh, let me use it as an example. Um, I think about what a young boy, a young girl on my block is experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis relative to what I experienced when I was their age, right? There is, and this is where the educational piece comes, um, uh, intersects with things like housing, right? 
Um, it's easy for us to look at the completion rates, right, the graduation rates, the retention rates, right, the lack of funding and education and isolate those areas there. But what are children, how are we nurturing children overall and how does that connect to their ability to be even, even be prepared when they go to school, right? On my block, for example, there's a house on the corner, right, that's vacant. It's, I know who owns it, right? I've been all over the gentleman, right? Uh, I found out who owned it. I found out his email address. I found out his phone number. And I tried to appeal to his heart. I say, I, I get that you bought this home and it was sitting there vacant. I know you bought it for $38,000. I know you put it back on the market for $76,000 without doing anything to it. That's a whole nother thing. But I didn't go there yet, right? Um, was this gentleman a Detroit resident? No. And see, that's the, that's, that's the thing is that you have this gentleman is 23-year-old kid from Port Huron who owns hundreds of properties in Detroit. Right. Um, and so I appeal to him and say, you have a vacant facility there. I've, I sit on my porch and watch young boys, young girls play, playing after school, riding their bikes up and down the street. If they're like me, <laughs> I was pretty adventurous. Right. And then they see this this house on the corner where they can go right into the back door. That's wide open. Right. And so. So what is that? How does that relate to education? We have this breakdown even in the community, partly because some of that stuff is out of, to a certain extent, some of that things are out of the control. That's why what, for example, what Sharita and, and her organization does is, is so important, right, is to, to allow some neighborhood local control on that thing so we can create an environment that is nurturing the growth of our children because it's really easy to look at the results on the back end. When I'm in college and I see some of those kids coming into the college environment and they're ill-prepared and I hear my colleagues who didn't come from those environments say they're ill-prepared, why are we recruiting them? <laughs> and and that, and that hurts my heart that that's where often the conversation stops and that affects the policy, the admissions policy at times, right? But there needs to be a more comprehensive approach to preparing and providing a nurturing environment for our children so that we're not just always focused on the back end. We need people to make some legitimate sacrifices to come into communities, not just to live in houses either, to actually be a part and build community. You know, so we're so, I feel like we're so disconnected and that's even within Detroit, but in the broader region, across communities, you know, we don't see a face to some of the issues yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis that are affecting our children. Well, we do, but other folks don't. Yeah, and to be honest, as a Detroiter, if you've seen it for so long, you know how you look at the same thing over and over again? And yeah. You have to be careful that it doesn't become background noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I have to intensely take certain streets. Yeah. And I, I remember my, my sons were a lot younger. I would intentionally drive them by areas where there was so much blight and abandoned buildings. And our son, Maximilian, would ask us, like, Mom, Dad, like, why is that house the way that it's, it is? And who's doing anything about it? Um, he's going to Wayne State now, wants to become an architect. But I think it's important that we connect our kids to the issues. And, and I have another question. So what if I'm a part of, I'm a resident of this neighborhood where this young man has purchased his home, and I see the home, and I want to buy the home. Can someone talk about the, the disparity of opportunities for or mortgages or predatory lending and why there's such a gap there in our city. Latrice. <laughs> Either in your, your former role or your new role, you probably can speak to that. All right, so I have a couple thoughts. Um, I do want to say, like, I have to give a lot of credit to grassroots organizations and community. 
And personally, I don't think it's enough resources to um, scale them up so that uh, communities can be changed for the better. Like we focus a lot, even in government, on the organizations that touch us a little bit, but don't touch us enough, don't understand some of the economic issues, don't have children uh, personally in their families that deal with some of the problems in the community. Y'all understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And so those grassroots organizations are so important. So I want to commend anybody in here yeah. who is in a gra who, who is in a grassroots situation, bringing kids into a house, teaching them whatever they need to learn so that they can be successful. We need more of those and we need to like work on scaling those programs exactly. up. So if you have money, right, and you're a donor, look for those organizations to donate to because it's easy to donate to, and I don't want to call any organization out, but it's easy to donate to the big name. But those small organizations need you. I mean, I've worked in a community of people who are doing some amazing things, and they're working on the, but their budgets solo, right? 40000 but they're doing $150,000 worth of work in a neighborhood. And so I just want to say that that is important to support those grassroots. And that kind of came off something you said, Sean, as far as um, housing in Detroit. Oh, man, I hope it's no reporters in here because I don't want to get quoted, right? But I'm going to say this. Listen, let's keep it a real, Sharita, you know. Um, I do. We're being sold off. Detroit is being yep. sold off. Thanks. Right? So I'm born and raised in Detroit. And I could tell, like, graduated high school, DPS school, Cast Tech. Okay, that was a yeah. flag. All right, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Detroit is literally being sold off to the higher, highest bidder. And what's happening is, if you're not in a certain circle to understand how to get the properties in the right way, you're not going to get them. Right? Um, it's unfair. And a lot of Detroiters who are like my mom, my grandmother, you know, that scripture comes into my heart that says hope deferred makes the heart sick. Mm -hmm. Detroiters are sick. Yeah. And that's what it boils down to, right? And that's yeah. why we need people who uh, can bring hope, right? And can kind of stir up that spirit again. Because back in the day, we Detroiters owned their homes, right? But you talk about issues like, uh, and, and Megan's not even, I mean, she, she could preach a whole sermon on illegal tax foreclosures. Right. Like, people don't understand how, how it has gripped. And some of us in here are sitting in houses that was taken away from somebody because they couldn't pay their bill. Yeah. And we don't even understand how connected we are to the issue. And so, wow. it's real. Yeah, it's real. Yeah. Some of us own investment properties. I was uh, downtown last week in a property tax um, division. And the lady was bawling her eyes out, y'all. Like, I, she owed $5,000. Bawling her eyes out. And it was a guy standing behind her and said, how much are her taxes? And they were like, 5000 something, something, some change. He was like, you know what? Here. Wow. wow. Go ahead, I'm going to pay for it. Wow. She hugged him. She asked him for his information. He would take it. And so, so two things I have to say about what you said, Pastor Sonny, is... If you guys have resources, right, and you can help somebody save their house, help them, right? Yes. Because these same people who are losing their homes have children. And I can't, I can't even imagine, I have three kids, not being able to have a house for them to put their, to sleep in. I mean, already you go in some of these houses, they don't have beds, they don't have water. At least they have a house, right? Like, housing is so important. Like, you can't function in school. Like, we think, you know, I, I'm going to be honest. I sent my kids to Detroit Public School last year for the first time. 
and I was judging some of the students in the class. Because I'm like, this behavior is terrible. I don't want my kid in this school with these kids, just be honest, right? And then I had to realize, like, Lord, I repent. Yeah. Come on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Come on. What can I do to come into the school to provide my resources, to provide my help? What can I do to volunteer? Because a lot of those children, they don't eat breakfast. Yeah. They don't eat lunch. They don't eat dinner. They don't have pillows. They don't have a TV. They don't have any of the comforts of life, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of it has to do is because back to you know some systemic issues on housing. Thank you so much, Latrice. Man, I hope. I hope we're really hearing this and would allow the Lord to allow us to feel the burden. We see the abandonment, we see the blight, we see a lot of that, but it's also very easy not to see uh, another issue in our city, that is the issue of the amount of kids that do not have a family or home to call their own. That's right. <sighs> Sam, help us out, yeah. sis. So there's um, something in the amount of 150,000 CPS um, cases a year. And out of those, I think it's 150,000, some odd number like that. But out of that, 14,000 are active CPS cases. Child Protective Services. Yes, child, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. And um, that equals to about almost 14,000 kids in foster care which breaks my heart because we have more churches in the state of Michigan. So if every church just fostered, what, not even fostered, just adopted one child, could you imagine, like, just, we spend over, like, $170 million for foster children. $170 million, that's insane. That's, that's so much money that we could be taking that money and helping the folks with their homes. Like, there's just so much more that can be done. But 77% of those um, Child Protective Service cases, 77% of them are because of neglect. And neglect because there's not housing, neglect because there's no beds, there's no pillows, neglect because the parents don't even know how to be parents. 48% of foster youth um, by the age of 18 have already had one or two children, 48%. So it just, the cycle just reoccurs over and over again. And why? It's because there's not enough of us out there that are willing to open our doors and teach, to teach how to be a parent to teach them what a schedule looks like. Can you, you guys, it, I, I'm out there all the time and, and these young people don't even know that they shouldn't be going to bed at 2 a.m. if they gotta get up at six to go to school. They have no idea. I had a, a conversation with a young man the other day. I was doing an assessment with him and we talked about um, just health in general and the things that he didn't know that you and I know is just, it's mind blowing. But he's not the only one. He didn't know that, um, he knew nothing of the food pyramid. Like, I'm sure many of your children, if they're you know, in middle school, they know what the food pyramid is. This cat was 19 years old. 19 years old, had 13 brothers and sisters on his mom's side and 25 on his dad's side. And all of them were in foster care. All of them are in foster care. He's also in a home right now where 
breaks my heart. He's in a home right now where the, the workers, so there's something called semi-independent living. So when, you, when you're 16 and you're in active foster care, you have the opportunity to go into semi-independent living. These homes are supposed to teach you life skills. So, you know, everything from hygiene to eating to school to job, transportation, all of it. He got lost. And the other, just, just a few weeks ago, Sherman and I get a call at like 2 a.m. because the staff member at this home, who just recently got out of prison, hit this kid with a chair. Why? Because the kid was warming up some food in the microwave and dude was asleep on the couch and got mad. Wow. Something simple as that. But not only that, the people who own the home, I thought that they would have fired the guy, you know? Like, I mean, to me, that's just common sense. You just fire him. Well, we get a call again, I don't know, what was it, Wednesday night? Again at 2 a.m., he kicked him out of the house. Dude was still at the home, still staff. So I say that to say, like, there's so many of us here that could be doing something to help with foster care, whether it's on the front end with the parents, you know, whether it's, you know, just donating a bed. We have um, a relationship with the Mattress Closeout Center in Bloomfield Hills, and they, they pay for beds. So if you hear of anybody in the neighborhood, you know, you could call us and we would take them a bed, you know? But it's something as simple as a bed or getting them registered for school, getting them the documents. If you got $30, you could, you could donate it to, to myself. You could find somebody, you know, not myself, but my organization. And we would pay for them to get their birth certificates and the documents that they need to get to school. You know, so they can they can have um, Medicaid yeah. to get their to get their um, um, their wellness checks. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's just so disheartening. Thank you, sis. Thank you. Thank you so much. Heavy stuff. Um, but again, we think it's important that we understand the current issues and the current reality so that we can do something about it. So now we're going to transition. Like, where do we go from here? How do we create a new reality? And what I appreciate about the, the series of teachings that we've been in, um, from Micah to Habakkuk to Jonah, um, a lot of times when um, you read the, those prophetic books, it starts out like, with well, God, what is going on? And, and, and whoever it is is kind of going off, and they're pouring out their heart, and they're seeing all these things. And some of it can be overwhelming, but always by the end of it, God is providing solutions, right? God is, God is the ultimate narrator of the story. Um, and he begins to craft that. And so I want to encourage us. One, um, there is a lot that's going on and you can be overwhelmed by the uh, 24 hour news cycle and all of that. Or you can be the type of person that just completely checks out and you're only concerned with your kids, your house, your family, your job. Right. And both of those are an error, gross error. OK, so we have to um, understand what's going on. We have to have a prayer life. We have to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So that when we are, when our heart does feel overwhelmed, there is a God that we can go to who does have answers and who does bring hope. So as we transition um, the conversation into um, what can we do? What, what is the heart of God concerning these issues? Um, and, and what are some of the solutions? I'm going to um, allow my friends on this side um, of the table to just to quickly, um, again, give a 90-second introduction of who you are, what you do, why you care, and why we should care. 
All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Chanel Hampton, and I thought I was going to say one thing, but listening to this side, um, so I actually uh, was an emancipated minor. I was the kid that ducked and dodged the foster care system. Um, I've lived on my own since I was 13, and I have three boys that are almost 30, and I'm not that much older than that. Um, so, and Sean, you talked, so Detroit, born here, this is home, we moved at least every 12 months, if not shorter than that, um, and ended up going to school out in the suburbs. My brother and I were the only black kids in our entire district until I was in 11th grade. Uh, had racist teachers, racist peers, and saw the distinct difference, though, in my educational experience in comparison to the rest of my family that was in Detroit public schools. Um, and so I use that as fuel uh, to say, this is motivation. Um, I'm going to prove them wrong, and more kids that look like me deserve to have these opportunities. Um, long story short, I've always wanted to be a civil rights attorney because of what I experienced growing up. Uh, went to Michigan for undergrad, and my senior year worked for an organization called AFSC, the American Friends and Service Committee, which is a Quaker-founded organization. I essentially was a free, unqualified attorney um, for Michigan incarcerated citizens. Uh, thought that would be the cherry on top, why I wanted to go to law school, and saw that people that look like me or people who are poor, once you're in the system, you are in the system. And my clients, frankly, did far less than most of my peers sitting in Michigan who had mommy and daddy to pay for a lawyer. Um, so I decided I was going to go into education. Uh, had no money, was broke, in case you didn't hear, lived on since I was 13, so I was poor. Uh, when the dorms closed down for winter, I had to figure out whose house I was going to for the two weeks it was shut down. Um, and so I became a teacher, was a middle school teacher, went into administration, um, and ultimately saw that people that looked like me were not leading organizations um, and being able to have a seat at the table to bring the solutions. So now I serve as the chief executive officer of Strategic Community Partners, uh, which is a capacity building firm. My goal is to make sure that people that look like me and people who are from this city and cities like this have a seat at the table, are bringing the solutions, and can do that in a way that is respectful and fully honoring community. Um, so I am honored to be on this panel. Wow. wow. Well, that's really hard to follow. <laughs> um, my name is Anna Wellemeyer. I um, am on this panel because I am a child and family therapist. Um, I work for Starfish Family Services, which is a community mental health um, agency out in Inkster. Um, and I am new to the field, so Sunny called us experts, but I'm a curious person and I will never claim that um, role ever as an expert. Um, I got to this role though because I previously worked in international community development and I was a teacher as well. Um, and I saw in my classroom, um, and I guess while I've been listening, I also had different thoughts when before everybody started talking, but I just feel like themes that I've heard over are like, the connectedness of all of these issues. Um, and things that I saw in my classroom, um, you know, I wanted my kids to be able to learn, I wanted them to read, I wanted them to be successful, but I saw, you know, if my kid has been going through all of this trauma at home, or they don't have food at home, or they don't have these things that they bring from home, how on earth can I expect them to sit down and read for five minutes? Um, if we can't help my kids learn how to regulate, um, because they've never had somebody teach them how to regulate, or they never had a parent that was able to help them because of, you know, just, I think also cycles and like connectedness are kind of the themes that I've heard. 
Um, and so I think when it comes to mental health, um, it's connected to all these systems that we have talked about, and it's at play in all of them. Um, and so I think that that is why you should care about mental health, because also your own mental health affects societies, right? We can't have healthy societies if we don't have healthy individuals as well. And so if we're not willing to like look at our own stuff and see how we're a part of what's going on, then how can we expect our society to change? Um, and so I think that's why you should care about mental health. That's good. <laughs> All right, hey everybody, um, I'm Deli, and um, hey. <laughs> um, and so I'm, kind of, I'm coming, representing kind of two areas, but primarily the LGBTQ community, how to minister and love and walk with, LGBTQ plus, and also education. So like, um, Sean, I am uh, I'm a, in higher education. And so why this is important to me, and I'll give a quick story. Um, I come from generations of sexual brokenness, um, and it wasn't that I didn't realize it till I started walking in victory. Then you look backwards and you can see, oh, this person, and then this person, and this person exposed this, then that person exposed me to this, and then I then exposed someone to that. And I think when you look back, even though my story may not be the exact same as everyone else's, the thread that I see in our communities, especially with related to when we connected to um, areas of sexual brokenness, which include identifying on a spectrum, on the LGBTQ spectrum, but it could be other things, um, is this idea of hit things in hiding, shame associated with pain, um, being traumatized, um, people shaming, and then also when people decide to come out from this closet that we created sometimes, we get angry because they call it pride. Mm. And so I want to just kind of highlight some of those things, and specifically from the church perspective, um, be very honest in saying, and you'll hear me say this, is that homosexuality itself is a sin in the same way that being a lying Christian is not congruent with our faith, and the same way that being a lustful Christian isn't congruent with our faith, and the same way that being um, self, you're self-motivating, always looking towards yourself, all these things, if you give that list of things, the beauty of them all is not that I'm condemning anyone, but that Christ himself died so that we could be free from it then, so that not we can walk in freedom today. Big facts. Right? So that's why I just want to say that, that it's not an accusation against who you are. It's more an invitation to see the fullness of the work of Christ in our lives. Um, and so if I had to say why should we care, it kind of ties to that. Um, Christ's name has been slandered mm. when it comes to ministering to the LGBTQ community. Yeah. He has not been given proper um, glory and honor and this work has been almost like belittled because it's almost as if we're saying he can't do that for you mm. and so I just want to stop there um, but just give because of my story that kind of puts me in position to care and love and hear more stories and learn a lot more and I'm able to do this as I also coach with um, high school students Sonny why do I have to go after her <laughs> Uh, my name is Andrew Pierce. Um, I'm on this panel because I'm a teacher. Um, similar to what a lot of other folks have said, um, when I'm, it's a huge honor to be on this panel. Um, and I think a common thread that I notice for everyone that's up here is um, people's story influences why they are doing what they're doing now. Almost every single person that's got on the mic has talked about how 
this happened, therefore Christ is doing this in me. Um, so I, I just, I, it's a, it's wild how Jesus works in that way. Um, yeah, so I, I just thought I'd point that out. Um, for me, that process was um, when I was in high school. Um, I graduated from high school that in our freshman year, we had 410 students. Um, by the time we graduated, there were 215 students walking across the stage. Um, to get it a little bit deeper, when we started, it was a majority-minority, massive immigrant community. Um, Majority-minority, 410 students. By the time we finished, they mostly looked like me. And it wasn't until I was in college that I began to put some of the pieces together as to why that happened, what some of those systems and powers and policies all were. Um, so I've been a teacher in Detroit for uh, five years. Actually, my first year teaching, I taught Delhi's younger siblings. Delhi, they were horrible. <laughs> No, sir. They were like they were like some of the best students I've ever taught. They're 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 awesome. Um, but yeah, it's it's an honor and a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to getting into it. What up, though, everybody? Um, I'm Nate Phillips. I am a Detroiter, born and raised. Uh, was raised uh, on a near west side green acres shout out J jeremy and corbin's and our green acres peoples um yeah D dps kid um i've i'm a i'm a neighborhood guy i'm a community guy uh i've done a lot of different things you know in terms of organizing and activism um you know around race relations and the like but you know being block club president you know, organizing people to do things politically and economically. Uh, like I said race relations work, and you know, with uh, New Detroit, with like uh, you know, young black leaders and and Jewish leaders in the in the city. Um, you know, I I do a lot in the community Andrew and I actually live in now. Yeah, we, we're we're neighbors, but um, a lot of just neighborhood building, uh, neighbor building, community stuff. I'm. Um, so, why, I guess, why do I care is the next thing. Um, so, you know, I've got an 11-year-old son. Um, I feel like I had a good upbringing in Detroit, and it's important to me that my kid, you know, lives in the city. He has a good upbringing. I mean, there, a lot of these problems are solvable. You know, I, I, I choose to kind of work. I mean, there are systems, you know, and there are definitely systems and cycles that we need to address, but then there's work that you can do across your, over your fence, you know, that um, is also really important. Um, there's work that you can do, you know, in your kids' schools and classrooms and coaching and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, I choose to, to um, really build communities that way. Um, why should you care? Because these, a lot of these solutions might seem inaccessible, but in, re in reality, like, you can, hopefully you should be able to take something that you hear today and go out and do that tomorrow, you know? And if if, if we can't persuade upon you to, to, to do that, I mean, I, I repent to you. <laughs> Give Nate a hand. 
I think something that he mentioned um, that's very significant is, um, so there's all different levels, right, that we can approach things. There's got to be an air game, and then there's got to be a ground game. Um, and so wherever you fit into that, um, just make sure you're doing something. Um, so Chanel, what gives you hope? In the midst of all the challenges and things we named, um, what, what gets, gets you going every day? I think a number of things give me hope. I think despite whatever the reality is, I know that God has greater and yeah. better planned. Um, so I think about Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, and so hope for me is, I just feel blessed every day. Hope is, I mean, I came from a very different, I was couch surfing at one point. I didn't have the roof. We didn't have electricity. We were howling, like heating our house with the oven and thank God it never like blew up. Um, hope is things get better. You might be going through something and be in the midst of the storm, but I always look back and I know where I came from. Yeah. And I thank God that I've come this far and have been able to bless others. Um, I think hope is being a teacher and, you know, every year I had about 150 students. I was a middle school English and social studies teacher. Hope is like seeing the kid get something that they didn't think they could get. Hope is seeing the kid that in my school we looped, so you stayed with your <laughs> students 6th, 7th, 8th grade, and when they went to high school you started back over 6th, 7th, 8th grade. Hope was seeing the kid that told me no teacher ever paid attention to them, mm -hmm. that they couldn't read. I had three kids that didn't know their alphabet in seventh grade. Mm -hmm. um, two transferred into seventh grade, one came immediately in sixth grade. Hope was seeing Faith be able to literally recite the entire alphabet. Hope was seeing Anthony grow five years in reading when Anthony couldn't read. Hope was seeing kids fulfill their potential. Yeah. Um, and all they needed was someone to just pour into them. They had the potential, they had it, that's hope. Yeah. Like yes. I think about those moments, there's hope every day. Yes. Thank you, I hope y'all hearing this. Um, Andrew, what gives you hope? Very similarly, um, and I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna try to take it a little bit different place though. Kids and families give me hope um, for a lot of the same reasons that you talked about, but I wanna go with what Sean talked about for a second. Sean talked about how a lot of times in this conversation, we as an American culture put the responsibility on the onus, especially on black and brown families. If they could just fix their stuff, we'd be fine. If these kids could just learn how to act right, we'd be fine. Don't you dare do that to my parents and my kids and the families of my kids. That's a stereotype. That's a lie. And we've, we've been fed that for years and years and generations and generations. And yeah, I mean, we, we can talk about issues all day long and there's a lot of issues and there's a lot of trauma. But the fact is that parents and kids that are resilient in the face of all of these things that we're talking about, that gives me hope more than anything else. Anna, what about you? Um have a lot of thoughts stirring around in my head and I'm trying to organize them into something that would be coherent. <laughs> um, I feel like what gives me hope is choosing to live from not a mindset of scarcity but a mindset of abundance yeah. that we've been given in God and I think that I think that even our mindset of scarcity goes towards well, how we view God and his character and how he's working in the world. And so when we choose to live from a mindset of abundance, um, I think that that 
is the thing that gives me hope the most is not um, yeah I think that's one thing and then another thing I think is like just this word connection I think keeps coming back into my mind and I think about the character of God and how even in the character of God we see in the Trinity that God is a relational God um, and how strong I think that the power of connection is um, and when people who are different can come together and can connect um, and we can learn from one another that's something that gives me hope too and how we see that modeled for us even in the character of God and how has Christ followers we are to model the character of God to the world around us and how um, if the church would really pursue that character of God I think that we would see a lot of things that were different so in, in the interest of time I'm gonna give you two a different question so Deli um, talk to me about um, the role of the church, like what what is the role of the church and, and what can we do um, concerning this? Okay, so I have notes because I'm long-winded, so I wanna just get to, get to most parts of my notes. <laughs> but I think the biggest thing for the church is to understand our historical role of oppressing people who struggle with the LGBTQ identity. Um, and then more than that is just making it seem like Jesus, that was nasty, Jesus doesn't care, he can't do anything about it, no one wants to be near you. I know I had those feelings. When I started feeling, um, when I started really struggling, I thought if I confessed this, no one would want me near their kids, I couldn't do anything, no one would talk to me, and I carried that. And often what that leads to is if there is no one providing hope, no relational aspect, we see very high rates of homelessness, depression, and suicide. Um, among the LGBTQ community. And unfortunately, the role of the church has been to push them into these isolated pathways um, because we're not ready. We don't know how to deal with it. We don't know. It doesn't fit with our very clean gospel sometimes or what we think is the gospel. But the truth is Jesus was in the mess with a bunch of people. I mean, he had the dude who betrayed him sitting up with him <laughs> for a long time and didn't kick him out, okay? And so we as as a church, now our role should now be to understand how we've misrepresented the work of Christ and walk alongside people who are asking questions. Not to force, some people honestly do not desire to change or to be um, transformed in any way. And we have to respect that and just relate to them and realize that people who are identify as LGBTQ are not just their sexual orientation, Amen. right? Yeah. And we de develop relationships that go deeper than that. And if your desire is to see them come into the fullness of Christ and to walk from sexual brokenness to wholeness, then you walk with them the whole way through all the other stuff God may reveal in their lives and in yours. <laughs> so that's why I think the role of the church is to understand the truth of the gospel, walk that out and walk it out in relationship. And then also for anyone in this room who I think is struggling, I will repent to you that I'm sorry for the way that we as a church has misrepresented Christ's love for you. Like if you're in here struggling with what I'm saying and it sounds harsh that I'm calling it a sin, the truth is it's sin but Christ's love for you will go above and beyond. He already has and he's going to meet you right here and where you are and you're questioning and you were not looking for
for change immediately. And I think that's the other thing with the church. We're not looking for a quick change, but we're saying obedience in anything takes time. And God has given us Holy Spirit to walk us through that. And for those of us who don't know, have any idea what it means to um, question sexual orientation, if God brings a friend into your life, ask for his grace, wisdom, just be a friend to listen um, and to study the scripture together. Um, And then as churches, we then have a role in making sure we represent Christ well, that we love, that we're honest about where we stand, um, and that we find practical ways to support, I think, LGBTQ youth. Where are they? Are they in hiding? Are they in homes? And we seek out opportunities to walk alongside without them feeling we're forcing them to behave a certain way, because we don't want behavior modification. We want complete transformation. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, And really quickly, Nate. Um, just talk to us about you know what we as uh, Detroit Church Detroiters can do to make an impact on some of these challenges. Okay, um, the short answer and the the actual thing is like pray. You know, I feel like. You know, it, it frustrates me a lot of times when I talk to people and, and, and I hear people say, well, you know, this situation is tough. All we can do is pray. You know, systemic, systemic poverty and oppression. All we can do is pray. It's like, no, 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 no. I get to, to go to the throne room of the King of Kings who has all power in his hands. And I'm a, I'm a welcome guest in this throne room because he's adopted me into his family, right? And I get to make my requests and my petitions known to the king of all kings, you know? And 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 I don't take that lightly, you know? And that's why I feel like, especially with, with, with neighbors, a lot of these solutions seem tough, but you can, you know, if you know the name, you know, you could take that person's name, to the throne and their situation to the throne and God is faithful. Yeah. God will will move. I and, and you know the the hope thing like you know that's what gives me hope. I've seen God move in this city. Yeah. I've seen God moves in the lives of people um, in schools. I've seen you know whole football teams you know come to the altar in tears in public school teams. You know what I'm saying? I've seen God God is faithful. But yes. the short answer pray like pray like you actually believe God is going to answer yes. these prayers. All right, so we, so we can, obviously we can keep this conversation going. Um, there's so many issues here, but we want to give you all a chance to respond or ask questions. So we got about, ooh, five, maybe 10 minutes to do this quickly. But if you have a burning question or a comment for any of our panelists or guests up here, um, I will come to you with the mic. I can see a hand in the back. Michelle. And we're going to have to give like 30 second responses, y'all. All right, here we go. Okay, so one thing that comes to mind when I think about it, especially the homes and displacement, a lot of times we're knowing we're taking homes from people who lived there for years, it's maybe 5000 in taxes, but no one ever stood up and said, I'm not going to exploit those who are losing out. So when will we find the people to stand up and say, I will not exploit them? Mm. Where they at? Where they at, though? Great question. Um, so... The organization I work for, the United Community Housing Coalition, we we keep people in their homes. <laughs> we don't exploit. We just finished. Um, we basically got cooperation from the city of Detroit 
to ask the city to use what's called their right of first refusal to buy a foreclosed property before it goes to auction. Uh, we raise the money, we have a revolving loan fund. The city deeds the property to our organization, so we sell the property back to the resident at cost, actually less than the back taxes owed at whatever rate they can afford at a 0% interest loan. Dope. And that goes into a revolving fund to help the next year's group. And then we get out there and knock on doors. So if you want to knock on doors, if you want a conscious, responsible organization that's reputable in the city that's been around for decades, you can, you can talk with me. The other thing I'll say is if you are an investor or if you're looking for an investment property, be conscious. Um, you know... We need ethical landlords. Detroit became a renter majority city for the first time in half a century in 2016. And that, that's, a, that's an issue because a lot of that was loss. And with less than 1,000 mortgages given in the city of Detroit each year, it's very hard to regain home ownership again. Mm. Um, so if you have a position or you, if you have a heart for this, maybe you're like the guy at the window. Or maybe if you buy a property, maybe you can work something out with that person that maybe wants to attain home ownership but can't get a mortgage, can't get traditional financing. Because right now it's a cash market. And some of us who maybe are of people of, of privilege, maybe we have the means to, to help in a way that you know someone else someone else can't. But let's be conscious about the way we invest. That's good. Thank you. Thank you, Mick. All right, DeAndre. Yeah, I had a question around like um, you talked about how many people we have in orphanage and stuff like that. So I mean I haven't did a lot of research on my own, but everything I've heard like adoption is like a really expensive process. Not so much sure about the foster care part, but was it something that we could do to kind of, you know, somebody's interested in being a foster parent or adoption to kind of help with the process? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so adoption, it, private adoption is absolutely expensive. I think we have... Um, I don't remember who it is in our congregation here that just adopted, but I believe when she spoke, she said she spent over $35,000 in adoption. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's back there. Um, so adoption is expensive, yes. Fostering is just... Um, is, is a lot less. Um, the children do remain wards of the state. It's just pretty much bringing somebody in. And to be 100% transparent with you guys, we have some in our own home um, that are traditionally not in foster care. Um, and uh, my husband and I really don't make that much money. Um, I work for a nonprofit. And we're still able to afford meals, three meals a day, you know, transportation, um, and the things that they need. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways. I can talk to you about this later on if you have any questions. But there's a lot of different ways you can support if you want to support, um, uh, you know, um, in the background or forefront. There's many, many different ways. Hey, Mike. Um, question for you. So as we think about police and we, we think about officers of the law, I want to extend the same question to you. What gives you hope? As an officer, what gives you hope as you think about what the Lord wants to do with police? Yeah, that's crazy. I was thinking about that question, too. Um, i say for me, um, even when I was working back in Detroit, you know, getting guns and dope is cool, but it was one instance that kind of stuck out and spoke volumes. I mean, I locked this one cat up, got him off the street. All right, cool. High five. Good. Month later, saw the same dude doing the same stuff. I'm like, all right. I think I got him this time. It's done. I shouldn't see you for a while. Literally two months later, I see the same guy. I'm like, what is going on? Is it me? So God just kind of revamped my spirit. 
and allow me to take a different approach. And I actually took the kid in and started building a relationship and I saw that it was a much deeper issue than just running and gunning. So for myself, even now, I'm working in the schools with the kids um, as a school resource officer, and I've been doing that for the past month. And I've been seeing more fruit. I've been seeing the fruits of my labor harvesting more just by building relationships than running and gunning. Don't get me wrong, it's the time and the place for that, but I've seen more done by you know, eliminating those misconceptions, those harsh realities, trying to bring to peace those deep, dark, disdained wounds, X, Y, and Z. So I feel like there's more that can be done you know, through just community relations. That's good. Thank you, Mike. We'll take two more questions. All right. Um, first, uh, I have a repentance because the populations that you guys deal with, I work, I'm a librarian at the main library, and I come across everything, LGBTQ, rich, poor, black, white, well, you name it, it comes through. And it has become background noise, like you said, Sonny. One, because we don't have the proper staff or the proper training to deal with everything at one time. So because there are 20 branches in Detroit of library services, the disconnect I notice from the inside now is that there are not enough community communities coming inside the library, which is totally free for you guys, to meet those people at their need, where they'll never come to the doors of that organization, whether they can't get there, they're too drunk, too high, or too shame, and they're just comfortable with the people they deal with, supposedly for books, but it's really more like social work. And my suggestion is for everyone that's in a, it's, it's crazy that we are a city department, but the city does not send anybody through our doors. Wow. Can I say something about that? I, I would just encourage you to reach out to your council people, right? Like they have meetings every single month, sometimes every other week, and they are a good way to draw people to the library. Like if you bring in the politicians that serve your area, people are going to come in. And a lot of our issues have to be changed on a legislative level. And I didn't get a chance to really speak to this, but we really need to be making sure we are picking the right people to vote for, right? And I'm not speaking Democrat versus Republican, none of that. But the person that cares about people and community and libraries yeah, and child on. services, like we still vote. And we had to make sure that we're, we're like researching the topic and for us, those of us who are called to government, hey, how about get out there? Mm. Like, get out there, run for something. If That's you good. feel like you can make a difference, like, don't forget the church is called to be in government. That's good. And we shouldn't shy away from that because it's something to sit at the table. I've had many conversations with Mayor Duggan to his face to say, I don't feel like this was what we should be doing for Detroiters. And it was hard, but I had to be brave. And I knew I was brave because God was with me. Mm. And if God is calling you to be in government, he'll be with you too. And so, so that's why it's important one for us to know our purpose, right? <laughs> Some of us are called to that arena. So if that's you, step up. Come on, Esther. That's good. <laughs> that's good. She's got my vote. <laughs> She's got you. All right, one more question from our sister. Mm, mm, mm. Time is getting away, man. I want to take every question, but we'll take at least one more. Okay, I know we talked a lot about issues, and all these issues are framed around possibly trauma, right? Um, how do we address the fact or get people to understand that trauma is real? Because people see trauma as a, you know, oh, you just get over it. Uh, housing, people say like, oh, well, if you had it done better, or foster care, oh, well, you're a young person, this is your life, deal with it, right? But how do we address the trauma and actually get people to understand it's okay to deal with the trauma? 
trauma and even recognize that people, when people are going through trauma, they react differently. So back in college, um, I had a class with a professor and one of my very good friends. Um, her name was Angeles. Angeles and me took this class, and it was a sociology class, so shout out, Sean. We took this class, and one of the things we had to do for this class was take what's called an ACEs test. And an ACEs, okay, we got some head nods, all right. An ACEs test is basically, it just asks you a bunch of questions along the lines of, have you ever been put out of your home? Have you ever not known when your next meal is gonna come from? Have you ever been hit or abused or neglected by a parent? And the list kind of goes on and on and on, and you answer yes, you answer no, you answer yes, you answer no. We finished a test, and I think I had like two, and my friend Ange has 10. And the professor looks at Ange and says, how on earth are you standing? Because what that does to your brain is ACEs, these, these traumatic effects, literally change the chemistry in your brain. We as humans think up here, it makes you think back here. It changes the way your brain works. And so the professor asks, how are, how are you standing? How is that even possible? Um, and then the professor starts to ask her, and he starts to say, do you ever have a coach that believed in you? Yes. Do you ever have a teacher that believed in you? Yes. Brother? Yes. Parent? Yes. Turns out, every single positive relationship that is developed with a person literally cancels out one of those traumatic events. Literally changes the way that your brain works. And I was, I was talking about this, and someone pointed out, hey, Andrew, if we're supposed to have a relationship with Jesus, wouldn't that cancel out quite a few? I've got, yeah, amen. I've got something to add. 25% of foster youth um, have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is, and it's going the twice the rate of war veterans. Twice the rate of war veterans. And the way that the new foster care and a lot of our community partners, including churches, um, address the issue of trauma is we host uh, free uh, trauma training classes that are, um, that that are instructed by um, psychologists and psychiatrists who have been in the field with foster youth uh, for years. So we do offer that for anybody. And, and even if you're not looking to foster, if it, you're, you're in Detroit, it's around you. There's kinships, there's people who are raising their grandchildren that can barely even raise them. But those, those babies have so much trauma from being away from their parents that it's just so helpful to be a part of something like that. Um, yeah, I would like to add to that too. So this is like, if Sunny were to give me a specialty, this would be my specialty, is childhood trauma um, and the way that it affects our brain chemistry. And I think that a big thing about getting it treated is the stigma that's around mental health. And I think especially in the church, we often just say, you know, yes, like I'm a therapist. I believe that God is a healer, but I also believe that he heals through people as well. Um, and so the stigma that we have around going and getting help um, from a professional, sometimes it can make people feel like, oh, like I'm not praying hard enough or I'm not doing the right things and God isn't going to heal me because of this. But I think that in the church we have a big stigma around mental health still and how that can interact with our faith. Um, and I think that during my training um, and during my education, I was able to see the beautiful way that like we say, you know, trauma happens in relationships, right? There's a brokenness in relationships that happens with a trauma. Somebody that you thought was safe is no longer safe, and that's a rupture. And healing also happens through a relationship. 
um, and that could be our relationship with God. I think that's a big part where our healing comes in is that, um, especially when it comes to trauma, like a lot of it is around safety um, and we don't think that we're safe anymore and how God can be our ultimate safety, but it's also through relationships with people. And so like Andrew said, you know, any loving relationship that you can have with somebody is helping rewire their brain, um, is giving kids, you know, it relates back to education, you know, foster care, everything it relates back to that is that, um, it gives kids, you know, access to their prefrontal cortex, their, um, I can't think of the word, like their decision making and their rational thinking and things like that. Um, and so I think that the church can be involved by being a place that is a place where people can find loving connection um, to God and loving connection to other people because a lot of our mental health issues stem from trauma, but also depression is something that comes and brings you and wants you to be isolated, right? And so isolation is kind of the enemy of healing. Um, and so I think that when we isolate ourselves from the church, when we isolate ourselves from God, when we isolate ourselves from other people, it really gets in the way of our healing. So and good. God is Jehovah Rapha. He is the healer, right? Come on. It's yes. good. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. We have a closing thought from my brother, Tim. So uh, there was a Christian stand-up comedian who, who I kind of developed this from, and he was, uh, was kind of doing like a motiv- motivational speaking, and he said, when you know your why, your what has more meaning. So when you know the, the, like, where you're coming from and why you're doing these things, what you're doing can impact. And if you don't know your why, then you're just kind of going through the motions. And so, uh, like, these people are talking and they're saying, you know, I, I, I was looked down on, I was, you know, I was disproved or, you know, I came from this situation and then I moved into that field and they have a why. These are passionate people who have their why and they're doing something. They're what holds more meaning. And I think I can take that one step further. If we know who we are, why we do things, or you know, what we're doing holds more weight because why... And if who we are are children of God, then we can identify why we're doing things. And then what we're doing in the end holds so much more weight. And these people are, are examples of that. So let's ask our own question of why. Why do I do the things? Why do I care about my kid? Why do I care about my schools? Why do I care about my neighborhood? Why do I care about my work and my business? And therefore, then what we are doing about those situations holds so much more weight because of who we are and who we are, our children of God. So we have, we have overcome by the, the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. These are all people who have gone through things and they're speaking their testimonies right now. And they have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimonies. And we're hearing that right now. So let us, let us figure out our why. And let's do our what's with meaning because of who God is and who we are in God. Amen. Amen. Yes, sir. Thank you, man. So I I know we have heard a lot. Um, And what is so beautiful about it is the Holy Spirit has been speaking the whole time. And so for some of you, um, you know, he's already made clear your next step. For some of you, there's um, some things that kind of came up in the conversation that you're like, okay, I need that to marinate a little bit. But whatever that is, I encourage you, implore you to sit with God, to sit in the presence of God and let him confirm his word to you. 
and then bring it to some trusted folks who will pray with you and then move and do something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of times we like to just sit up here and like, oh, that was really, I learned some things. Mm -mm, it's got to move from here to here to here to these hands and these feet um, and, and get to moving and, and doing what it is that God has called us to do. Thanks for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, like, and rate. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for Detroit Church. Detroit Church.